0: This is Terrible Parables, a podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, in which a Bible scholar, a pastor, and an anxious Christian look for some good news and passages of Scripture that are difficult, frightening, or particularly, well, terrible. I'm your host, Callie Yee. And in a little bit, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Todd Brewer and Brian Gerald. Join us as we find that sometimes the spooky things that go bump in the night are just figments of our imaginations. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there. He began to teach them many things in parables, and in his teaching, he said to them, listen. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil and it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, let anyone with ears to hear listen. So I don't even need to ask y'all what makes this You wait, parable. you don't want to hear
1: from us first? <laughs> I,
0: I this parable, Todd, ooh, is so hard for me. It's so hard for me to read. And so I'm really excited for what you guys have to say. But can I just explain why this is hard? Absolutely. All right. So this Parable feels so terrible to me because as I Google it, which Google is not the first thing that you should go to, obviously, but there are so many interpretations out there that just bring me into this deep rabbit hole of law. And so I feel like Mm -hmm. there are there are some people that do the other thing, as in they say, oh, other people are like the rocky soil, but I am the good soil. Other people are the thorny soil, but I'm the good soil. But for me, I am the complete opposite of that. My mind immediately goes to, oh, I am the rocky soil and I have to do everything in my power to be the good soil. So I have to make sure I do devotionals and and Mm -hmm. pray and do all of this stuff, Mm -hmm. knowing, knowing that grace is sufficient and whatever. But my mind loves to say that I am the rocky soil and because of that, like, grace is not for me. And so it just feels kind of hopeless. And so... I just am really looking forward to hearing from you guys.
1: So you go to like the worst case scenario.
0: Worst case scenario. My brain immediately (laughs) goes to that. Um, And I hope I'm, well, I I hope I'm the only one that does that. As in, I don't want anyone. You're not
2: the only one, Callie.
0: I know. I don't want anyone else to experience it. But I know I'm not alone in that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This is a really tough parable, Uh, not because the parable itself is tough necessarily, but because for a parable that Jesus actually explains to all of us without Mm -hmm. moralism, spoiler, that's what we're going to talk about, (laughs) Um, like preachers have done their best forever to make this a moralistic text. Yes. And they've said things like, examine your soil. You like plow your soil, make mm-hmm. your soil better so that the gospel can land on you. Yes. And I don't think that that has any bearing on what Jesus intended when he's out on a boat looking at a massive crowd, talking and, and preaching and teaching at the beginning of his ministry in the gospel of Mark. And uh, I'm just really sorry, Callie. I'm like, uh, I, and I feel bad for anyone listening who's been in that same place where a parable like this has been like, how's your soil? Till your soil, make your soil better. Soil can't change itself it can't? <laughs> Like <laughs> have you ever seen a soil that changed itself before i i certainly haven't no it just sits there anyway
1: uh,
2: but yeah. but i guess my point is is this is um one of those many parables part of what makes it so terrible is that it can become this moralistic thing
0: mm-hmm. and
2: then we make it into a moralistic thing but but it's so vague about what it means. Like, what does it even mean to change your soul? I don't know. And so yeah. we can fill that gap in with whatever our favorite sort of legalistic things are. For sure. Uh, whether it's sort of that quiet time, do your devotions, pray every day um, with rigor, and um, or whether it's join the soup kitchen, uh, give to charities. or There's a bunch of different ways this can become a moralistic mess. And uh, I think by the time we're done, we'll see that's not what Jesus intended. Hmm. L- what do you think, Todd?
1: Yeah, I think um I think because the the divisions of soil are quite specified, it's really easy for preachers to kind of get on their usual hobby horses about whatever various moralisms they want to talk about, right? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. for example, John Chrysostom in his interpretation of the parable, which is otherwise quite good, he's very kind of attentive to the details of the narrative, um but when it comes to his take-home message, he only has anything to say about the thorny ground, the, about people who are rich. And he mm. uses this basically to say everyone should be ascetic and no oh, one should accumulate interesting. wealth. Oh. And here you go. like, And he has nothing to say about any of the others. So I think for me that's illustrative of the way that we can sort of take the um, variations that Jesus spells out and just gravitate towards the one that we really think is the problem.
0: You like pick and choose. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Like, it's not every day we throw an early church father under the bus, but
2: if that's all he's got for this passage, there's, there's, there's more there
1: that he's missing. <laughs> I mean, he's quite good otherwise, but, but when it comes to ac- his actual take-home message to people, he's quite, he's quite severe. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, sorry, Chris Awesome, not sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that, that I think goes on with this parable... So often, and I, I actually experienced this in my college Christian fellowship, which was uh, <laughs> quite reformed. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. As you add a dash of predestination to this, and it's very easy for Christians to understand themselves, uh, not in questioning of whether they are the rocky or thorny soil. The flip side is to say to say that they are the good soil mm-hmm. for sure.
0: And other people mm-hmm. are the rockier mm-hmm. soil. Right,
1: and so then anyone who sort of comes in and then leaves anyone who you sort of speak to yeah. uh, and preach the gospel to who doesn't respond. <laughs> oh, well, they they must be uh, the reprobate, i.e. the rocky ground, the thorny soil, the, yeah, the, the ground yeah. along the way. And it's used in, in this very oddly kind of self-righteous manner where I'm yeah. the good guy here. I'm the good soil. Yeah. I'm producing fruit. I'm out there preaching the word. And all of these other people, they're so terrible. Look at all these different ways yeah. they fail. Yeah.
2: yeah, it's sort of this way of, of absolving somebody from the responsibility of their gospel communication, right? I think of the bullhorn guy outside of a sporting arena, you know? <laughs> and and there's a sense in which you talk to him, you're like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, it's okay, because I'm going to—I I know it's not landing for everybody, but it's going to land on the good I'm soil. I'm just sowing some seed. sowing the seed, <laughs> as it were. And, and so, yeah, there there are some ways in which I think this text becomes unwilling, unwittingly a justification for a certain theological position or a justification for a certain, as we say in Pittsburgh, a certain jag-off behaviors, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, certain behaviors uh, that are um, not really thoughtful expressions of loving one's neighbor hmm. can be justified because it's like, oh, well... Again, they're not the good seed. Like there's
0: something I don't wrong have with to them. care about them. Yeah.
1: yeah, I'm
2: just looking through the soil to find the good seed, and that's where I'm gonna gonna plant. Yeah,
1: they take the simplicity of the image of the sower and liken it to themselves, and so that if they have a confrontational conversation with the waiter at their table about X, Y, and Z, uh, but they've at least sowed the seed. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and like, that's, let's be honest, that's a temptation for every Christian, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I've got my
2: tradition. I feel comfortable and I feel good in it. They're all the bad soils. And mm-hmm. if they don't want to come to my way of thinking, well, that's just them. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, let's, let's be honest. Who, who hasn't done that? Like this idea that people are somehow predisposed based on who they are to either hear and receive or reject. I don't know that that's the point of this parable. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so we've been talking about what what makes this parable so terrible um, and talking about what this parable doesn't mean or what the interpretations aren't but what is the actual take from this parable
1: so I've got major props to a book that I read. Uh, it came out... The PhD is gonna to recommend to us a book. Really? It came out in the 80s. Shocked. Uh, Shocked we are. So the author is by the name of... A uh, scholar by the name of Mary Ann Tolbert, and the book is titled Sewing the Gospel, Mark's World in Literary Historical Perspective. and you know it came out in the 80s a very early kind of contribution to narrative critical readings of gospels and was in in many ways formative for later commentators like Joel Marcus whose mark commentary i can't recommend highly enough so what she says is actually that this this parable because it falls at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're talking chapter four, um, the, the appearance of large crowds here is the first one. It's also the first parable in Mark's gospel. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, right. it, so it's setting the table for what to expect in the rest of the parable mm-hmm. by virtue of its early... Um, yeah kind of, this This is sort of like Mark, how we might think of Mark's Sermon on the Mount type deal. Ooh, it's um, that
2: big a deal, yeah, according to, to her.
1: Yeah, it's kind of the very beginning of, of Jesus's real kingdom uh, teachings and uh, where Jesus sort of explains what he means by the kingdom. And what her point is that from a kind of literary narrative perspective, if you look for these various kinds of soil... They become immediately recognizable as characters in the narrative itself.
2: Oh, that's fascinating!
1: So, huh. the ground along the way, which is eaten up by the birds, i.e., Satan, mm-hmm. um, these would be the opponents of Jesus, the people who hear what he's teaching and immediately reject it. Wow! So, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians, the Sadducees, uh, etc. So right. So this mm-hmm.
0: is like allegory territory.
1: Oh, yeah, this is allegory territory. Oh, my goodness. This is good allegory. That's like, yeah,
0: that's like a no-no Todd. for Todd, but he's full-on giving I, us an allegory. I don't Brian. deny allegory. It's saying something to-
2: nice <laughs> about allegorical interpretations. What? Allegory is perfectly fine.
0: Uh, if they do it right. It's hey, perfectly fine. Jesus is the
1: one who provides the allegory himself on this parable. So, Ooh, mic yeah. drop. F- fair enough. Let's be honest
2: here. Like, he does give us an interpretation of the parable. Yeah. This is not the hardest uh, uh, of the <laughs> podcast episodes we're doing here, right? <laughs> there, there is some answer and guidance from Jesus on this one.
1: Right. So, then the rocky ground, which would be none other than the disciples themselves, those who receive uh, his message okay. and immediately fall away. Hmm. When persecution comes because Mark, unlike Matthew or Luke, uh, have this line in the Garden of of Gethsemane and they all fled.
0: Hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. As
1: soon as the soldiers show up to arrest Jesus, he's left abandoned, alone by everyone. And then, you know, to further drive the point home, Peter denies him three times. Yeah. So so Jesus uh, basically dies with no one um, there. Right. So the disciples are the rocky ground. The thorny ground uh, would be the rich man in Mark ten, and probably Herod as well, who's also oh right, because because uh, uh, there's
2: that throwaway line where it's like uh, Herod was interested in this Jesus guy and tried to sort of like figure out what was going on, and then finally like when 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 uh, at the end of Mark when Jesus is brought before him in the trial, he's like, oh good, I get to finally meet this Jesus guy. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's really fascinating. Consumed
1: with the cares and concerns of this world, he is. Yes. Oh wow, wow, wow. But the so then the twist though is she then pivots to say, Where is the good soil in Mark's gospel? Yeah. Hmm. And there's no identifiable analogue. There's not Mm. a single character is the good soil in this in this gospel
0: interesting that almost feels like good news though
1: <laughs> <laughs> right I mean so Jesus dies with uh, abandoned by all of his faithful followers he's alone he's outside the, he's outside um, the women approach the tomb anticipating that they would find a body there They're like so there's no actual good characters in so so to, so to speak who mm. understand who Jesus is and carry it through uh, an and through, through his death.
2: That's really fascinating. So, so
1: in some senses, this is a bleak parable. The good soil that he's sort of talking about could maybe be indirectly referenced to the gospel text itself, but there's no individual who represents a good soil.
0: It's almost like the good soil once again is representing how impossible it is to be like the impossibility of fulfilling the law.
1: Yeah, and in some senses, I would say Mark would put it around in terms of the impossibility of recognizing who Jesus really was within his his ministry, um, and or rejecting who he was. Okay, like understanding that he's the Messiah, but rejecting the idea that he's a Messiah who has to suffer and die and be crucified, or mm-hmm. accepting that he is a son of David, as in Bartimaeus, but then rejecting him to the degree that he doesn't go and die alongside him, as Jesus himself said that they all should do in Mark mm-hmm. 8. Yeah, yeah. Um, Take up your cross and follow right, me. Right. As soon as persecution comes. Yeah. Bartimaeus is named. He seems like a great guy, but he's also one who flees mm-hmm. when the going gets tough, uh, so mm-hmm. to speak. So That's really fascinating. And uh I, I think... I like it
2: because, you know, yeah, we're not big fans of allegory here, but at the very <laughs> least, there's some there's some real, I guess, inter- like if you're going to find allegory, like find it within the book that you're actually working through. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I think it's a really, it's a really fascinating breakdown of, of sort of setting up the beginning of his ministry by saying, here are the four soils. And then by the end of it, everybody is going to be, it's revealed to everyone that they're not the good soil.
1: Yeah. They either care too much about the cares and concerns of this world, or they uh, crap themselves when the Romans show up. <laughs> <laughs> that's in the Greek, right?
0: <laughs> good imagery there.
1: That's, that's somewhere. That's somewhere. Uh, they crap themselves when the Romans show up. <laughs> the Garden but, of Gethsemane but, was a smelly place.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what's, what's wild, though, is that even though there's not a single person in Mark's gospel who becomes the good soil... Like, part of this parable is that Jesus sows the seed anyway, right? Hmm. Like, and, and the sower, you know, I've read enough about this to know that some scholars don't agree with this, but I, I can't not see the wastefulness of the sower working on the soil here, right? Like think about your own backyard garden. It's like here's the potting soil that you set down so that you could grow your petunias and you just take your seed and you just scatter it so it lands on the sidewalk <laughs> and the brick and the patio and the grass around it but some happens to fall in the pot with the petunias yeah. and so you get some petunias, right? Like that's just wasteful sowing and and you know as we're looking at how ancient farming works, There's some disagreement about whether you throw the seed and then you till the soil, whether you till the soil and then you throw the seed. But what ends up happening is this sower takes seed that lands amongst thorns and the thorns are growing and they choke. So it's not like all of the seed is landing in in good space. There's a sense in which this seed is going in places where birds are going to come eat it, where the ground is not made for growing, where the thorns are going to choke it up, um, and so there's a, there's a sense of a you know almost wastefulness here. Especially again, if if we're going with the, this interpretation Todd that you put forward about these characters, you can see that happening throughout. Uh, Mark, right, especially in Mark 8, where yeah. where Peter, he gets that Jesus is the Christ, but then he gets rebuked, uh, oh, 30 seconds later, metaphorically mm. speaking,
0: he gets <laughs> immediately
2: rebuked because he pulls Jesus aside and, and tries to correct him, um, yeah. and that happens over and over and over again in Mark, but the seed still gets thrown anyway. And I think it's, it says something about the graciousness of God mm. that he's not out there, you know, with a pH test testing the soil and he's not <laughs> out there, you know, um, uh, taking soil samples and sending them away to a lab. He's actually just saying, I don't care if I waste the seed, mm-hmm. even though the seed cost me something. I'm going to throw it wherever I want and I'm just going to go kind of here, there and everywhere.
0: It's well, like the Oprah thing that you were talking yes, about it's earlier, the Oprah meme, right?
2: Yeah, you know Oprah, right? She gave away the car. Remember this? The internet meme: you get a car, you get a car, everybody gets a car. It's it, it's <laughs> the same thing, right? You get the seeds, you get the seeds, everybody gets the seeds. And I, you hear stories about people who got the car from Oprah, and they were like, "Oh, I can't pay the taxes on a new car right now." Or like, um, oh, it's uh, it's not the the make and model of a vehicle that I want.
1: I'd rather have a Subaru. Right, <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. I don't remember what car it was. It's like I'd rather have a Toyota. Come on, or, my my current car is nicer than this one. So, so there's a sense in which you know um, that's the modern parable. is Oprah and her car giveaway from a decade or so back. So
0: Jesus is Oprah.
2: Uh, yes, take it to the bank. Jesus cool. is Oprah. Sounds um, good.
0: <laughs> you, you you heard it here first, folks.
2: That could get me
1: defrocked. Fragments <laughs> of grace, uh, right?
2: Fragments. fragments. But but yeah, I think there is something about the willy-nilly sort of non-favoritism spreading of the word. Even if it looks like all the soil is in a bad place, Jesus doesn't care.
1: Well, and you can even put it even more immediately into G- Jesus' teaching in this very moment. In other words, right, he's, right, right. he's telling them this parable knowing precisely that his words will come to naught, Right. And, you know, like he sees the world for what it is, but keeps talking. Yeah. Mm. He keeps sowing the seed.
2: And it, the crowds are getting bigger at this point, right? Because he's in a boat. He has to get away from the shore so everyone can hear him. Mm-hmm. And yet he knows the futility of the crowds because by the time he is crucified,
1: the crowds are gone. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, in many ways, this is an anticipation of, of the cross. Where Jesus sees the world for all it is, sees the ways in which our hearts are, are bent in amongst various competing allegiances, various mm-hmm. competing desires, but nevertheless still sows. And in this very parable itself. Yeah. I mean, wow. like he, he looks at the worst that the world has to offer and nevertheless embraces it in such a way that leads to his death. I mean and yeah,
2: and, and he loved them to the end, right?
1: Yeah. That that's that's mm-hmm. the key. Yeah.
0: So, uh I have an article for you guys that is from uh, my one of my favorite uh, Mockingbird issues. This isn't new to you guys. I've already like gushed about it. Um, and you're not wrong
2: to gush. Let's, <laughs> let's put it up front. Like this is a phenomenal one of one of the best essays out of Mockingbird in what 15 years. I, 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 absolutely.
1: We don't play favorites, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Every I article know. is. Amazing. Yes. This is the
2: general general editor of our blog, encouraging everybody to write and submit wonderful <laughs> things to him for publication. I
1: love all my children <laughs> <laughs> equally. We'll, we'll
0: plug his email at the end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but anyway, uh, this article comes from Simeon Zoll, um, uh, yeah, and it's yeah. the Lost Doctrine of Sin. But anyway, I have a little snippet of it. The whole article is fantastic. There are amazing things. But he writes this, theologically speaking, sin is a condition under which human lives exist. Sin is a way of describing the fact that there is a fundamental flaw in the human system and is an explanation for why that system keeps throwing up errors. The doctrine of sin is a way of saying that reality is like a lens with a subtle but pervasive flaw, such that everything that goes through it gets distorted plans go wrong, communications fail, good intentions decay and corrupt, and of describing the fact that, in so many things that happen, there's a slight tilt towards the perverse and the cruel. In other words, it is a description of the fact that there is a fundamental bias against flourishing that appears to be written into our hearts. So we have to think of sin as a condition. It is like gravity, only it causes enormous suffering. And this condition is not just an idea, it is a reality.
2: What I appreciate so much about that article, especially in relationship here, is that the source of the wrong things in the world, yeah, some of it's outside, you know, like hurricanes and tornadoes, but for the most part, the problems do stem from the human heart. Uh, that that the part of the law of this parable is that we're asked by Jesus to examine our hearts and see that the problem in this back and forth between the heavens and sinful humanity is not on the end of the sinful, um, it's not on the end of, of heaven, it's on the end of sinful humans that there's something about the soil of our hearts that rejects and does not allow the seed of the gospel to be planted. And I think that there is something, again, as, as Todd eloquently said, this sort of futile feeling ministry here is not because Jesus is wrong, or Jesus is bad, or Jesus is dumb, or Jesus is an ineffective minister. It has to do with the people who are listening. That's the source of where all of these things find their root.
1: Yeah. Extrapolating from the parable to an idea of original sin is is, mm. is actually really fascinating if you think about it because original sin is often thought of as as this kind of concept that is a little heady or mm. it, it has to do with a kind of attribution of wrong. But w- the way Simeon talks about it here is as as an explanatory do- uh, sort of doctrine. Yeah, yeah. As something that... In the same way that Jesus in this parable talks about... Why fruit doesn't produ- isn't produced? Right, um, right. So Simeon, you know, I think they're, they're, these two are are paralleling quite well with each other. The the story that actually came to mind um, to me as you were reading that is I'm I'm reading through Philip Yancey's memoir where the light fell. Mm. Oh um, yeah. I'm I'm halfway through it and and it's it's bleak in many ways, but he's describing his his sort of life as as being you know really religious. And really, uh, he was, he was a kind of fairly good Christian. And then one summer he goes to a a kind of Christian summer camp. His mom is the Bible teacher for this summer camp. So he's there the whole summer and camp people go in and out. And by the end of the summer, he's bored. Hmm. And he's on the one hand, he's like responding to the teaching. He's, he's enjoying everything. But by the end he's bored and he tells this story about how he and a friend discovered a bunch of box turtles. Hmm. And they, uh, they noticed that if, if they got near a box turtle, they, the turtle would shut its shell and just stop. Hmm. And what they realized was they had a fear of death that led them to paralysis, basically, hmm. and shut themselves oh. up. Hmm. And upon noticing this, what they then proceeded to do was to take a very large boulder... No and no. drop it on every single no. one of these turtles. Oh my gosh. And what Yancey says about this is, he says that there was a kind of perverse bloodlust mm. that yeah. rose arose in me, something that I hadn't been aware of before. Mm. And he he mm. sort of describes it in the same way Augustine describes uh, his stealing of the pears in the Confession. Like this yeah. is the moment when he realized that there's something wrong with his heart, mm. that's more Ooh. than simple kind of doing the right thing or wrong thing, but that he lo- he he did the wrong thing and he enjoyed it. Mm. And that yeah, yeah. It, it, it was a kind of mirror to himself. Mm. And I, I think that in many ways is, is how this kind of parable really functions well. Um, on the one is that, yes, is that we are these, these various kinds of, of soils um, and to identify with them. Um, not by in, uh, not in such a way that, that we try harder mm-hmm. to change our soil because soil can't change itself. Right. But right. rather, uh, as an exp- explanatory doctrine that r- that recognizes that there is something wrong with our soil. Yeah. And yeah. Um, the the problem is deeper than than mere uh, than mere activities or morality. Um, yeah. That mm-hmm. it's 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 it, it needs to be. Um, yeah, it needs to be changed.
0: This idea of um, so to speak. Um, the fact that a mirror is held up to us, um, showing us our sins or showing us our brokenness um, feels really, really scary. Mm. But also, it's only when, when I see myself for how I really am that I realize I cannot do it on my own. There's nothing that I can do. And so because of that, I need to look to something outside of myself to save me.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's right, which is part of why I get really frustrated that when you Google this parable, and I will echo what Callie said, do not Google this stuff, do friends. Do not.
0: Please <laughs> don't. <laughs>
2: like, all you get is moralism, and it's change your soil. Change your soil. And soil can't change itself, as Todd said. And Yeah. And... and, and it just drives me nuts because again, this is one of the few parables where Jesus actually explains the parable. And when Jesus explains the parable, he doesn't say change your soil. Mm -hmm. He simply leaves this as a description of his reality and his ministry, that there is some level of futility to what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And he does a futile thing out of love. Mm -hmm. He he loves the, the people to whom he was sent. They did not receive him. And so when we add the moral burden of change your soil, change your soil uh, to this, we're really doing the opposite of what Jesus intended, which is that examine your soil and see how bad things actually are. I think if we think we all know people like this, we can point, uh, for example, maybe there's someone in your life who's like really picky romantically and you keep trying to set them up and uh, I'm not talking about anybody um, within a 10-mile radius Are you of, sure of, of Charlottesville, <laughs> Virginia right now. But they're just super-duper picky and every time you try to set them up with somebody, um, you know, the, the romance goes apart or they just completely have the string of torn-apart romances and after a while you see them saying, oh, well, this person went wasn't right for me. This person wasn't right. This person wasn't right. You're like, you know, there's the only common denominator in all of your life's uh, struggles is you, <laughs> right? And, and so there is this sense of bringing back and, and saying, okay, well, what does life, ministry, church, family look like if I examine my soil and realize I'm part of the problem? I think that is where, if if we're left with that at the end of this parable, I think we're in a much better place than some sort of moralistic vacuum that we fill in with whatever the
1: the day-to-day sort of behavior or practice we like is. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And on the other side of this failure, the story Hmm. in some senses ends open-endedly, right? Mm -hmm. Right, Um, right. But we're meant to infer, you know, you will all deny me. But I will go before you into Galilee, uh, right? He says in uh, Mark fourteen. There is an anticipation that on the other side of failure, on the other side of of the seed coming to the soil and not producing fruit, the risen Jesus comes and nevertheless meets his disciples who failed, who right. nevertheless is sent into the world which had rejected him and had right. crucified him. Right. In many ways, that's where the sort of the bleakness of this parable pushes. To an understanding of Jesus who nevertheless embraces it with grace rather than judgment. His first word to the disciples wasn't, where were you? <laughs> you know? Right, right. Mm-hmm. It was peace. <laughs> if I were Jesus, I would have like, held it over them. <laughs> oh, right. yes. Right. You said you were gonna be there and mm-hmm. you weren't. But, but that's, not how, that's not the tact he takes. It's not. And thanks be to God for that, because Lord knows in our own lives,
2: we've got plenty of moments where Jesus could say, where were you? But he says to us instead, peace. Uh, And I prefer peace as as what Jesus says (laughs) than anything else.
0: (laughs) Me too. Thank you for listening to Terrible Parables. You can find us on the web at ember.com. Audio production for Terrible Parables is provided by TJ Hester. Please leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you've had a not so terrible time.